Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. I am in awe of what God is doing today. Um, yeah, let's. I'm just going to pray again because I think I probably need it. Uh, Heavenly Father. Our Father, God, we thank you so much for what you are doing, Lord. And I even just want to take a moment for a pause. Welcome the Holy Spirit personally, everyone. Yeah. Mark us, God, for what you made us for and for nothing else. Amen. Amen. Well, I feel like God's been kind of speaking to me about this for a few months. I don't even know when or if I was going to speak again. And then the same morning that Tammy asked, uh, texted me asking me, I had, I don't read this particular devotional book. I have, like, it's, in, it's actually in our bathroom, um, generally. Um, but one morning I walked into the bathroom and I just felt like I was really meant to read it. And I was like, you sure, God? <laughs> like, I'd rather just start the day doing you know, a Bible plan or something rather than reading a book. But I felt like he said, do it. And the verse that... Um, that the devotional was about, was about John the Baptist. I'm going to mention it later and talk about it in detail. But um, I don't know Josh McDonald at all. Um, but the last time I heard him, I heard him speak once, and it was a field in Georgia, and he was speaking about John the Baptist being the friend of the bridegroom. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge something that God's doing, not just in my heart, but I'm sure for us generally, Pastor Bill spoke last week about John the Baptist. It's a John the Baptist moment where forerunners preparing something for the Lord. So God, we just say yes to you and what you're preparing and what you're bringing us into right now, God. So you'll bring us into your promise. Yes. Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start in Joshua chapter 1. Um, chapter 1, verse 1. And I've been blown away, honestly, personally, by just preparing for this message. I feel like it's been the best thing I needed. Um, and part of why is because there are many similarities in the Bible between the life of Moses, the life of Jesus, the life of Joshua, and the life of Jesus. And I want to touch on some of that this morning to understand how blessed we are to be invited into the relationship with God that we're invited into. This is a really special time in world history and what God is doing in His narrative for all of humanity, and to really understand that and be encouraged in it. And right before this, Moses has led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years after leading them out of Egypt and out of slavery, you know, parts of the Red Sea, the famous story, 40 years in the wilderness during that time, goes up to Mount Sinai, receives the Ten Commandments, all the laws, the priesthood, everything. And Moses has been told by God, though, that because of uh, essentially a prideful episode, he will not be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Joshua will instead lead the people, and Joshua has been Moses' assistant for years and years on end. And so Moses goes up to the top of a mountain and sees the promised land that he has been waiting to see his entire life. He's 120 years old. And it says that his strength is completely unabated. Um, this is Deuteronomy chapter 34, just right before Joshua 1, just a very quick summary, is that his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And so then he lays his hands on Moses, the spirit of wisdom, is given to Joshua that Moses had. God departs it to him. And now Joshua verse 1, Joshua 1 verse 1, this is what God has to say to Joshua now that Moses has just, been, just died and been taken up to heaven. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, 
The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you will cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I think all of us would love to hear God, you know, the Lord of creator of heaven and earth, say these words to us. And the point I want to make is his words to us are even stronger right now. Jesus, at the end of his life, just like Moses, goes up to a mountain. And I guess unlike Moses, he died once, but he was now back to life. And his vigor was unabated, his eye was undimmed, and he lives on forever now, of course. And he goes up that mountain and he knows it's his time to leave. And his ministry, in a sense, on the earth has ended but he's laid a groundwork that's going to continue on. And he's going to impart his same spirit instead of just one assistant, Joshua, to Moses. He's got 12 disciples. And so he says these words to them. All authority, this is Matthew 28, sorry, also in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the point I want to draw across is there's a lot of parallels between these two. But Jesus is saying essentially the exact same thing that God said to Joshua. Less words and more personal. And he's saying it to us. When Moses said this to Joshua, he was saying something that was for Joshua and Joshua only. I'll be with you all the days of your life is what God says. And that's, that's really good news for Joshua. I hope it's true for me, but it doesn't apply to me. When Jesus speaks to the disciples, he says, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. This still doesn't come. So he's not just speaking to those 12 disciples, of course. And he's telling them, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So who are those disciples? It's not just us, but it's all of us if we believe in Jesus. It applies to us. The same words. And how much more precious is it versus no man shall stand against you is what God speaks to Joshua. That's a strong promise. It's another thing to say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. No spirit, no power, no force that exists in the universe will stand against you. And we'll touch more on what that means later on. It's also another thing to say, you know, be careful. Do not depart from the right or the left to what Moses, my servant, commanded you. So I spoke it to him. He spoke it to you. Listen to that. It's another thing for God himself incarnate in the flesh to be looking in the eyes of his friends and saying what I've told you. Don't depart from that. And that's a model for us. God is speaking to us in that way. So we have something in that sense that's even more precious than Joshua. And one last thing is that also the all nations promise. Joshua was going into a promised land that was one physical land in Israel. There was no king for Israel at that time. They later asked for one when they shouldn't have. But there was no king because God was their king. 
And now the kingdom of God is spreading across the whole earth, not just Israel. Something different has come, a new covenant. And so the point is that Joshua is going in to establish, in some sense, the kingdom of God, which will take place in Israel, and he fights physical battles. And now we're going to see the, physical, the kingdom of God, which is spiritual. And we don't fight physical battles. The weapons of warfare are not flesh and blood. We, don't, we, don't wep- we have carnal weapons. We wrestle against rulers and powers and spirits, forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's an invisible battle that's going on. But we have an even stronger certainty that we're going to win if we're on Jesus' side. He wins the war. That's for certain. And so then we get to this point now where we understand that Joshua and Jesus have... Jesus has given a similar assignment to Moses. And Joshua has received this assignment. The disciples received the assignment. But there's also a way to understand that Joshua and Jesus are also very much the same. Joshua's name is actually Jesus in some sense, right? Many people know this. You can look it up anywhere on the internet. Yehoshua is kind of, I'm probably bitching a little bit, but that's the way it's meant to be pronounced in terms of Hebrew. Jesus typically spoke Aramaic, so they cut off a syllable, shortened it, Yeshua. And that's why we sing that beautiful song, Yeshua. Like, that's, that's the whole thing, that Jesus is being named Joshua. And it's not like Jesus was given some special name that no one had ever heard of before. There are probably a lot of Joshuas around. It's very common to be named this name. But God sent the angel Gabriel to Mary and Joseph and told them, you're going to name this miraculously conceived child, this particular name, for a reason, obviously. He wasn't just saying it thoughtlessly. It means Yahweh's salvation, but it's obviously calling back to something, Joshua. And so Jesus, just like Joshua, goes from the Jordan River to start a public ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist, and he goes into Israel to the promised land to now start a new kingdom that's not just for Israel, but for all of the earth. Joshua sent to the promised land. Obviously, he goes in to establish the kingdom of Israel. And then there's also many, many similarities between Jesus and Moses, and particularly Moses speaks about someone who is going to come after him, who would be um, from among his brothers, but that he would be an even greater prophet than Moses was. He says, one day a prophet like me will arise. And so then Jesus is being shown all throughout the gospel, John in particular, and I won't get into it in detail, to be this person, just like Moses. Moses goes up the mountain in the wilderness, fast 40 days and nights. Jesus goes into the wilderness, fast 40 days. Moses also talks about the law and gives teachings on it. Jesus then expands on the exact same teachings that Moses was given. And then one that I also want to focus on is that Moses delegated his spirit and his authority to 70 people in Numbers 11. Jesus sends out 72, or even some transcripts say 70, and gives them his spirit and his authority, and that was temporary for that time. Now it's permanent. It's permanent later on. And he tells them, do the same things I did. I'm giving you that same authority and portion. And so there's a picture that right God's trying to paint here that we're meant to get. This is like, okay, this happened before. He's doing it again. But what's happening now is even greater. And so now that we get to this moment about John the Baptist that I think God has really wanted to focus on, this is, the again, the one verse I feel like God is giving me for literally months, just telling me, next time you're going to speak from the front, this is what I want you to speak on. And so we get to this point in Luke. It's also in Matthew 11, but in Luke 7. John the Baptist has served his ministry publicly. He was baptizing people, preparing the way, telling them, you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your own sins. It's not enough to be a child of Israel, to be just like, oh, I'm a a child of Abraham, so therefore I'm a child of God. That's not enough. You need to yourself establish that you are going to ask God for mercy yourself. So that's why he's baptizing people in the Jordan. He's saying you need to identify yourself as a sinner who is needing to repent. Jesus then comes to continue his ministry because he says this is God's work. God was with John. But now that Jesus is continuing John's ministry, 
people are going away from John's ministry because they want to get baptized by Jesus because John said Jesus is greater than I. And then, worst of all, John gets thrown in prison. And so John's there, and we don't know this for sure. Um, Justin Bass and I were talking about this, but whether or not it's John the Baptist who himself is so discouraged that he's doubting whether Jesus is actually the Messiah, or his disciples are just a little bit jealous for their own teacher, and they're saying, actually, shouldn't he be brought out right now, Jesus? But he sends messengers to him. The, the messengers come. They say, we're meant to ask. Are we meant to look for another person who might be the Messiah, basically, because John's in prison. Jesus honors John, talks about him publicly in the highest esteem, and says these words. After the messengers have left, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That must have been some of the most shocking words that people had ever heard in their lifetimes. These people dedicated their lives to the law of Moses, to understanding that there's going to be a Messiah to come one day. But Jesus is saying more than Moses, more than Joshua, more than any prophet that's ever come before, John the Baptist is the greatest man who's ever walked the earth. And the least in the kingdom is greater than he. That's profound for us to realize. But before we try and apply it to ourselves, I think we really need to understand what he's saying about John. John the Baptist in um, John chapter 3 is asked by people as he's baptizing the scene I was describing earlier, you know, aren't you basically upset? Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, this is in uh, John chapter 3. To whom you bore witness, verse 26, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the greatness of John. The mistake that many people will make, and I've made it myself, is that we start getting something from God and then we really want to cling on to it when we feel like it might be slipping away a little bit and it's not what we thought. John the Baptist was completely okay with that his ministry career had been very short-lived and he didn't know, but he was actually basically about to retire. He's going to be sent to prison. He'd never make it out. He would die there and he'd never actually get to be a public disciple of Jesus in a sense. I'm sure he would have loved to follow him, but he didn't get that opportunity. And he rejoiced in it. I'm really humbled by even what they just shared about coming to New York and it's not what you thought, but staying faithful through that, right? God is going to call us to things that are really not what we think, and usually it means a lot more humbling for us. And so John the Baptist is willing to decrease so that Jesus would increase, and that needs to be the call of all of us. And so if that's true of what makes John the Baptist great, then clearly what makes us great has to be the same thing, if not more so, right? If the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, then the least in the kingdom of heaven needs to be, in some sense, less than John the Baptist and decrease even more so. John, uh, Jesus goes on to say later in this gospel, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And I think even in, in cultures right now where like revival and stuff is going on, and I got the pleasure of going to Azri, Caitlin, and I, and Jaira, and one of the things we were so struck by there, we did not get smacked in the face by the presence of God. I didn't have some sort of crazy experience. There was no fire from the sky. There weren't crazy manifestations even. There was not much like outwardly supernatural going on. The humility that we encountered in the students, the administrators, the staff at that school was literally unlike anything I'd ever seen. Those people considered it such a great honor that they could usher people toward their chairs at Asbury. They were delighted in it. 
And if we want revival, is that going to be our response when people come to us asking questions that might annoy us sometimes? Oh, it's an honor to get to serve my God and serve you in this moment. That was the posture of John. And John the Baptist was also, he was the, the friend of the bridegroom, but we're the bride. Everyone who believes in Jesus, who's been established in the new covenant with him, that he's made in his blood, just like we took communion before, he said with the disciples, I will not drink this again with you until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. And he's referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will come after Jesus returns, when he will marry his people. They will be with him forevermore, never to be separated. If you believe in Jesus now, you're betrothed to him. It's something different than engagement, but we won't get into that right now. Um, but God is saying that there's something even more significant than John the Baptist had because we get to be the bride of the bridegroom, but that still is humbling for us because the bridegroom is the one that we submit to. He's the one in charge. And so this is something that Jesus really needed his disciples to understand, and he knew he needed them to understand it. And so as the passage you mentioned earlier in Luke 10, Jesus sends out his disciples and not just them, 72 in total. And he tells them, I'm going to give you authority to heal the sick, preach good news. You're going to cast out the demons in my name. Evil spirits are going to go out of people. And they go out and they're shocked as any of us would be that all these things happen just straight away. Instant response. And so they come back and they're ecstatic and they're rejoicing. Look what we've done. And they come to Jesus and Jesus says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That would be a shock to me. And I'll actually tell a story relating to this in just a second. But it goes on in this verse, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So I have a story that I've told some people before. I get to share it in the first service um, for a matter of time, but it's a favorite one. Is that Caitlin and I, um, we met each other at the beginning of 2019. And part of how I knew that God was doing something special in our friendship was that God would just speak to Caitlin about stuff that I wasn't telling anyone. And I was kind of like, God, it feels like you're instructing me to open up to this person because she knows stuff that only you know about me. So, And one of the examples of this was typically I would read a devotional, say it was a night, day before, a couple of days before. And Caitlin would then text me something relating to that exact same verse within like 24 to 48 hours. And this happened consistently for a while that I was just like, God, what, you know, that was private. Like, that was, it wasn't meant to be shared. I wasn't telling that to anyone. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I was just reading the Bible. And I don't know, I just felt like this came up. And so I was like, okay, I guess maybe this is, I mean, I knew she was a special person devoted to God, but it, it took it to a whole new level. <laughs> um, and one of the, Prime examples of this, maybe the most outstanding one was when I studied, I studied social work at NYU and um, that's where we met each other. My field placement was I was working in a couple of different elementary schools in the Lower East Side and like behavioral therapy with it. Um, mainly like third, fourth graders, but all ages, one, first through fifth grade. And there was one particular time, it was spring break for them. So I actually didn't really have anything to do because the kids are just playing outside and having fun. So there's no homework to help with. Kids are much happier than usual because I had a long day at school, so there's not much conflict. So I'm just meant to be there and be present and obviously make sure like no one's hurting each other, but there's not really anything for me. And I guess just like uh, full disclosure a little bit, I was actually fasting that day a little bit, so I was just really hungry and I just felt sad <laughs> and bored. <laughs> and it really bothered me that I felt this way. I didn't want to feel this way, but I was like, wow, I really didn't realize I needed something to be happening all the time or to be eating something to have joy. <laughs> And so I actually felt like God maybe was just bringing this verse to mind. I wasn't sure, but I just kept thinking of this verse from Luke. It just stuck in my mind the whole day. I was like, I don't, I don't 
need to have something amazing happen today, God, to be joyful. So I was like, kind of like trying to like motivate myself a little bit all day with this. And then something really strange happened where actually one of the guys who was actually a, a little brother of a volunteer there, a sixth grader, he hurt his knee playing basketball. And then he was having trouble, having trouble walking up the stairs and telling him I was hurting, he's at the back and he's falling behind. So I went up and actually asked him, could I pray for him? Um, and so I did and he got healed on the spot. And of course, I'm really happy. But now I'm like, God, this is ironic. <laughs> like this is, I've been so kind of like melancholic all day and now I'm happy because a miracle happened. But the whole point of the verse I've been meditating all day is that I don't need something miraculous to happen to be happy in a day. I shouldn't take some special conversation to make me go, oh, today was purposeful. And so I'm kind of baffled by this. I'm riding my bike back to NYU and I'm pondering this same thing. Literally on this particular block, I stop at a stoplight. I've been thinking of this verse this whole, whole time, literally on the block that I'm on. I take out my phone at the stoplight and I've got a text from Caitlin saying, hey, I was just reading the Bible. I don't know if this means anything to you, something to that sort. But I was just reading this verse like Luke 10, 20 and I just felt like I was meant to send it to you. Just, I don't know if it's anything from God. <laughs> It's just like, Lord, how is this happening? Uh, but part of what I took away from this is not just, okay, I, Caitlin's a very special person, and I did more about that later on, but was also that God is really emphasizing this verse to me. Like, he's speaking loud and clear, and I should really listen right now. And obviously, that wasn't just so that, oh, now I'll take it seriously. That is true regardless. It's just from now on, I took it a little bit more seriously, but we should be taking that on all of us. God doesn't want us to rejoice because of the good works we do in God's name. He wants us to rejoice because our names are written in heaven. That's what Jesus said. And so I actually think one of the people that probably was just similar to myself in personality, I relate to a lot when I read the Bible, was Peter. Peter, for anyone who's ever read any of the Gospels, his tone is very like stereotypically like easily excited, you know, gets rejuvenated by every single thing Jesus does. It's like, let's go change the world and... And but Peter also is sadly uh, an example of self-reliance in a bad way. So Jesus says this to the disciples that have come back. And then I wonder what their response was, but I'm sure Jesus had in the back of his mind, there's going to come a day that like we talked about with communion, that he would be betrayed and everyone would wander off and abandon him. And Peter, most of all, at the Last Supper, when Jesus said he was going to be betrayed and that all of you will be scattered, Peter said, I will not, not me. I'll die for you. If they all abandon you, I won't, God. I won't, Lord. And so that's the sad thing about Peter is that he does. Jesus says to him, you, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And then after the third denial, we know Jesus looks at Peter and he breaks down weeping, but it actually doesn't still change anything. He doesn't go to anyone after that and say, oh, I'm actually a disciple. His response is still, I'm afraid to be associated with him. And so I wonder what it looked like then for Peter, decades and decades on, having meditated on this and thought about this all his life, to come to the point that he writes the first letter of Peter. This is 1 Peter verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 through 13. And he's writing this to an established, established series of churches all within the Roman Empire, mostly in like the area of Asia Minus, like the Turkey basically is modern-day equivalent. Um, and he's telling them in the midst of a really fiery trial that's going on of persecution, Hold fast to your faith, and this is how you'll be able to do so. So for anyone who's coming in today with challenges, with suffering, this was not written to a people who are often some monastic community elsewhere where they were just on their own seeking God. These are people who, some of them, they had seen people die for their faith. 
People were losing jobs. People had, had splits with family members. This was costing them everything. And Peter is saying, this is my encouragement for you all. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Christ to those who elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guided through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though as tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and this will kind of be one of, sort of like a final passage. I know also that it was um, daylight savings. We lost an hour. I have a 10 and a half month old son, so I'll give a moment everyone to pinch themselves if they need it. I'll drink some water, but... Peter is saying here, essentially from start to finish, and I'll explain exactly how. Our victory is in God and not in ourselves. Peter probably knew this better than anyone. Starting with the verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and then going on into verse 3, it said, Wayne Grudem in commentating on this, it says, Being born anew is by His great mercy, a phrase with the same preposition, katar, as according to the foreknowledge. No foreknowledge of the fact that we would believe for seeing any desirableness or merit on our part is mentioned here or anywhere else in the scriptures when indicating God's ultimate reason for our salvation. It is simply according to his great mercy that he gave us new life. The Lamb's book of life has apparently been sealed in some sense from the foundation of the world. God has known before he even created mankind those who would choose him. And the fact that we chose him is still what Peter is saying, his mercy toward us. I'm not saying that we do not have free will. You decide whether or not you're going to decide to, you're going to follow Jesus. That is up to you. But if you decide to follow Jesus, know that as a mercy of God that you even have the desire to do that. And that's what Peter's saying. Your confidence, if you began believing in this in the first place, and you're scared that you're going to fall away from your faith, the fact that you even have that thought that I desire to live a life that is truly with God is actually God's mercy to you. So be confident. He goes on to say, like, you are being guarded by God's power, by God's power, being guided through faith for salvation, ready to, uh, ready to be revealed at the last time. So the one guarding the faith that he gave you in the first place is still God. It's not you. 
what a reassuring thing to say, because if otherwise it's about me, then I need to start my faith with grace and continue by works. But we know Paul talks about in the letter to Galatians, we start by grace, we continue by grace, and that's how we continue to go on. And Peter then goes on even in verse 10. This is Wayne Grudem again in his commentary in First Peter. The purpose of this paragraph is to show Peter's readers that the spiritual blessings they now have are greater than anything that was envisaged by Old Testament prophets or even by angels. Thus, Peter seeks to increase his readers' appreciation for their great salvation in Christ. And that applies to all of us. Going on with the angels verse particularly, Peter tells his readers, ancient prophets predicted the grace that would be yours. You live in the great time of glories, which was long foretold. The prophets were in fact repeatedly ministering for the benefit of you. That's verse 12. The world-changing events have now been proclaimed to you through the working of the Holy Spirit sent in epoch, changing new power from heaven. Though the world may think such Christians insignificant and worthy of pity or scorn, angels who ultimately who see ultimately reality from God's perspective, find them to be objects of intense interest. For they know that these struggling believers are actually the recipients of God's greatest blessings and honored participants in a great drama at the focal point of universal history. We too may rightly think of our Christian lives as no less privileged and no less interesting to holy angels than the lives of Peter's readers. Angels in heaven, when they saw what was happening to Jesus, were fascinated what was going on on the earth. And when they saw what's happened afterwards, now he's exalted in glory with all authority in heaven and earth having been given to him, they're even more fascinated because something even greater is going on. If John the Baptist's life was significant to prepare the way for Jesus, how, Jesus, how much more so his return? So God is saying, when you're discouraged that your life feels a little bit like menial tasks and kind of mundane things going on, there are angels in heaven looking at you like, what's going to happen next? He has worked today. I wonder whether he's going to come closer to God through his work day. That person was just in an argument. Wow, the forgiveness and grace that exists between people who have forgiveness shown by Christ first is remarkable. I wonder how this will change the world. Preparing it, purifying it for Jesus' return. But <laughs> Thank you, Juliana. <laughs> um, but the, the thing about this is obviously there's a responsibility it carries, right? In Hebrews it says, what, will we should, what shall we do if we would neglect such a great salvation? If they trembled with fear when Moses was being given the old covenant on Mount Sinai, how much more so this one, the greater covenant that doesn't just have a mediator who's a person or angels who are coming to deliver. God is the one who's mediating this covenant himself. He's the high priest for us. So there's a, there's a fear to be had with this. There's a reverence. And so it's to kind of come toward an end, is that there's two, as a warning and an encouragement. Matthew chapter 7, this is a Sermon on the Mount, beginning of Jesus' ministry. He gives this warning. Matthew 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. God wants every person to know him. Peter actually writes about as much. Second Peter 3, he goes in great detail to talking about how God longs for all people to come to repentance. But we know, he says... The road to destruction is wide, many find it. The road to life is narrow, few do. 
And the scary warning here is that you can really think that you know God because you do good things for him and you'd be wrong. I know that God doesn't want that for a single person in this room. And I also know that God wants people in this room to see even greater things than the early church did. We know that God says in the last days, he'll pour out a spirit on all flesh, right? The disciples who stayed faithful to Jesus, they saw miracles too, but they knew him. And they knew that's where it comes from. And so Luke chapter 24, verse 50, this is the same sort of passage as the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Same one, just different text where Jesus said a few different things that are now recorded by Luke that weren't in Matthew. Jesus led them as far out as Bethany and lifting up his, uh, lifting up his eyes, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he went from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. We can go out in great joy and live a life that's rejoicing in the fact that God has already sealed the victory. We set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. If our whole life is fixed on the fact that either Jesus will return and we'll see him in his glory or we'll die and come face to face with him and we'll still receive more grace then. He won't just say, like, well done, good and faithful servant, because we earned something. We get in by the grace of God. And when we see Jesus, even though we started by grace and continued by grace, then we'll just be receiving more grace than ever before. That's the glory of God. It's His grace from start to finish. I'll encounter Jesus and see Him and I'll look Him in the eyes and know I didn't deserve His mercy. That's the blessing. It's not me. It's not you. It's all of us. It's the mercy of God that brings us to salvation. And Peter's saying, put your hope in this. Jesus is saying, go rejoice in this. Live the rest of your life rejoicing in this one fact. If you know your name is written in heaven, you will never be insecure about ministry, no, nothing else. You'll never struggle to respond when you're in a battle and you don't have confidence. God's with me. It's not mine. The battle belongs to God. And so the confidence today that we can have is so much greater than even Joshua because he was going to do something that obviously was important and essential to God's plan for human history. But we're in something so much more important even. So take confidence in that. God is with you if you desire to live a life walking with Him. If you want to know Him, you will see the glory of God. And so I'll welcome up the worship team. But as I want to close here, I have a few things, to, a couple of things to go over for altar call. Of course, if you've never put your faith in the good news that we've mentioned many times, that the Holy Spirit sent from heaven messengers, people to share it with us, the message that Jesus crucified is the way to life believing in his death and resurrection for us. That's what takes our shame, uh, all our uncleanness, all our sin, all the evil within us, even healing us from the evil that has been done to us. That all came through the cross. There is no other way to God. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life because you need to believe in the Lamb, Jesus, who was killed for us on Passover. So God is saying, if you want your name to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life and you've never even asked God for that before, you can have that today. So please, we'll welcome up prayer people and prayer ministers and then come up, tell someone about it and receive that. And also, if you're realizing that I've actually, you know, if you put confidence in your good works, if I've taken confidence that I do things, not just miracles, I give to the poor, I'm a genuinely good person and that's how you think you're going to get salvation with God. You can do the greatest miracles and that will never be enough. God's not blind to the good things we do, but we're blind to our sin if we think that that's going to earn us righteousness with God. So God is inviting us to receive that grace. So if that's you also, come up to the front. And then lastly, but not least, to receive that commissioning again, to walk in that afresh. 
to be able to go out into all the earth, to go in Jesus' authority, to make disciples of all nations, including the ones that don't have anyone within them reached yet, who haven't heard the gospel, to proclaim the gospel that Jesus is coming to the earth and He's a way where every person who receives Him can be part of His kingdom. If you want to receive that commissioning afresh today, I also invite you to come to the front and we'll just be worshipping as we go. So, Father... Yeah, I just really feel the Father's invitation that He's waiting for people here to respond. He's waiting. He's eager. He's on the edge of His seat. He's not apathetic. He's not distant. He has a longing that He could be gracious to us. Yeah, so come. And Lord Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, have Your way. Yeah, come up to the front if you want prayer. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.